We're going to be continuing our series on the afterlife. What happens when we die? This is part four. And uh, again, just an exciting thing. Uh, you can go ahead and be seated. So a couple things. We, I, I'm going to try not to do too much of a recap today as I've done a recap every single time we've done this, an extensive recap. If you'd like a little bit more information on some of this stuff, then absolutely go back on our YouTube. You can watch it. The other lessons also on our podcast, you can watch it and uh, kind of catch up as far as that's concerned. Tonight, you shouldn't need to do any of that. You shouldn't need to have any more information than what I am giving you. <clears throat> this Tonight, we will be focusing more so on this specific title, Where Do We Go When We Die? Our last lesson, lesson three, we talked about the place or the eternal destiny of the unrighteous. We will be talking tonight about the eternal destiny of the righteous. Hallelujah. So this is a good one, praise the Lord. And really, it, it, I don't know if I'm going to get through this whole thing I'm going to have to move quickly because there's so much to talk about when it comes to this topic. First of all, let me be very, very clear again. I know you've heard it four times now, but I am not God. I do not have all the answers. If anybody tells you they have all the answers about the end times or the afterlife, they're lying to you, praise the Lord. Because although we have the prophecy, we can paint a picture the best we can, we do not, not know 100%. Uh, and, and again, I think it would be foolish for us to think that we know 100% exactly how everything's going to play out when in the Old Testament, most of people who were scholarly, studied the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, had no idea that the Messiah was going to come the way he did. And if they could miss it that in that day, certainly we could miss it as well. So what we have to do is we have to be honest, take a look at scriptures, paint a picture using all of the Bible, and try to put the pieces together. So I'm going to try to give you a play-by-play, -play, if you will, a schedule as to what will happen to us throughout all of eternity, at least until we get to the New Jerusalem, which is the point where the Bible leaves off. So I'm going to try to do that the best that I can. But again, let me be very clear if it comes down to it, and in eternity, something happens that you say, well, pastor didn't say it happens now, or this is supposed to happen later, don't worry about it, hallelujah. I'm telling you right now, I'm not God. This is just the best that we can. This is through all the research I've done to try to compile it so that we can have at least a schedule, a timeline, something we can look at and be excited about, hallelujah. But the points that are absolutely uh, important and, and given in Scripture, I will try to highlight those things more so than anything else. So we're looking at the Bible, not anything else, to try to get the answers on the afterlife and to discover what exactly happens when we die. So three assurances the Bible gives. This is really the only amount of recap that I will be doing tonight Three assurances the Bible gives concerning what happens when we die. Number one, 
There absolutely is an afterlife. No matter what we know, there absolutely is an afterlife. What we're doing right now is extremely important, but this is only a, a small portion of your entire lifespan. Because when God breathed that life into that dust, it created that living soul. And that was the beginning of life. And that living soul does not die. The body dies, but the living soul does not die. All human beings will live forever somewhere. The eternal destinies, point three, the eternal destinies of people of faith and those who reject God are quite different. If you did not get a chance to hear about the eternal destiny of the unrighteous, I would encourage you, please go and listen to last Wednesday's message about hell uh, again, something that is, at least for me, it was very impacting, eye-opening to be able to just study those things again and look at it. We have to recognize hell is a place that we don't want to go, right? And heaven is a place we absolutely want to go. So we have to recognize those two things. So where do we go when we die? The unrighteous, I'm sorry, I skipped a little portion here, but the unrighteous shall go away into everlasting punishment while the righteous into eternal life. This is according to Matthew 25, 46. I didn't put it on there, but it says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So, Everybody will end up either in everlasting punishment or in life eternal. What we're here to talk about is that those two words, life eternal. What does that mean? Is that just us sitting around in heaven, you know, just kind of doing whatever we want to do for all of eternity? I've had some people tell me lately that just it just sounds so boring. <laughs> Well, let me assure you, life eternal will not be boring. There is a lot to look forward to. In fact, I just uh, I, I commented on my cousin's post not too long ago. She posted something. I don't really remember what it was about, but I believe it had something to do with pickles. And I told her that I remember as a small child, she was encouraging me to go to heaven and the way she t chose to do that, she said, Aaron, when you get to heaven, you can have all the pickles you want. Now, I don't know what scripture she got that out of exactly, but that was enough for young Aaron to decide he wanted to go to heaven. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So there's so much that we have to look forward to. And really, there's so much confusion about what will happen, when it will happen, and all of that. I remember going to a play as a child called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Anybody remember that play? It's uh, uh, something, I don't remember what kind of church it was, but it was a certain type of church that put it on every year. My family would go. We went several times. 
And, you know, it was, it was a very interesting play, really just gripped you because it was uh, basically showing, you know, those who die, then they end up at the gates of heaven, and, and then the, the angel tells them, no, they have to go, and then the, the demons come and take them and drag them down into hell. And I mean, this was, it was an intense play. <laughs> Let's just say that. Very intense play. But, you know, the, the, the state of uh, events there certainly did not coincide with the Bible, at least not the way that I see it. Before we're ever going to face, uh, or the unrighteous shall face that, those books, the book of life and all of that, those things come much, much later on in the earth's history. There's so much still for the earth. Even after the rapture, the earth will still be here for a long period of time. So let's, let's get into all of this. So the eternal destiny of the righteous. This is the play-by-play. First, we will be in the place of rest or heaven or paradise. To the best of our knowledge, immediately we will be carried into this place. Again, these are some scriptures that we've read. The scripture suggests that our souls are immediately placed in the place of rest or unrest. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, and Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross. Today he was going to be with him in paradise. Uh, and then we see the next story, Luke uh, 18, 16, verse 22 and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, again, we've talked all about this. Abraham's bosom, I believe, was something in the Old Testament, a, a place uh, actually in hell that was separated for the righteous. But when Jesus died on the cross, he set the captives free and he took all those who were in Abraham's bosom and he took them to their uh, place of rest, which would be heaven or paradise, the place that we would go to today. So again, you know, this is, this is one of those topics that is shrouded in mystery. This is stuff that I believe uh, we've kind of come up with an, uh, an understanding towards, but we could be very wrong on Abraham's bosom. There's not a lot of information about Abraham's bosom. These are things that we've put together with several scriptures, but I do believe is quite possibly the case. But I, I, I love this. It says that he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I believe that's exactly what's going to happen for every righteous man or woman that passes on this earth. You will be carried by the angels into that place of rest or uh, heaven or paradise, whatever you want to call it. We will be carried to it. Next, when we die, we will be with the Lord and other saints. The Bible is very clear about this. We're not going to be sitting somewhere, you know, in a corner, in a room, and, you know, never see anybody, anything. We're going to be with the Lord. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, 
to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That was Paul's mindset. Either I'm in this body, in this world, with this life, or I am with the Lord. So again, being present with the Lord, meaning once I die, I will be with the Lord. Here's another passage of Scripture kind of detailing uh, either heaven or the new earth, but I believe it. They, uh, a lot of the, the writings, a lot of the, the words describing heaven or the new Jerusalem and the new earth, they kind of look the same. But this uh, is given by Jesus himself. He says, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So again, this is a place that when we come to, we'll be able to actually sit with them, be with them. It's not going to be just a spiritual place where we're going to you know, no longer have thoughts or anything. We're going to actually be able to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be able to, all those heroes in the Bible that you have, you'll be able to sit down and talk with them. Hallelujah. And praise the Lord, you're going to have plenty of time to do it too, praise God, because it's eternity. But man, what an awesome thing that is to know I'll be able to sit down with David and discuss, you know, how it, what it was like and as a shepherd having to, to go and face Goliath. I've always wondered the type of panic he probably felt. I know we like to pretend, you know, oh, he was just a warrior for Jesus, Man, I've been a warrior for Jesus while also panicking and sweating out my suits. Hallelujah. So, you know, I just, I love the idea of being able to be with others in the scriptures. These men and women, these warriors and and those of the faith. uh, And those, even those that we know who have gone on before us, will be able to be with them again and to speak with them. Now, although the Bible clearly states that the soul will go to Hades or paradise and not the physical body, we will obviously still have most, if not all, of our senses. Now, this is a point I've made uh, several times, but I want to reiterate this because, again, once we get in there, it's not like, again, you're going to lose all your taste buds, you're going to lose your sight, your ears, all those things. You will still have these senses, obviously. Again, I don't know how. I couldn't tell you exactly how that will happen, but you obviously will. The rich man in Luke chapter 16, he exhibited imagination, conscience, memory, reason, affection. He had thirst. He felt pain. He could look and see. So all of these things are obviously still happening even when we shed our body and we go to heaven. We'll still have these. That's of course, wasn't in Hades or hell, but obviously heaven will be similar and we'll have all that as well. It's getting smaller and smaller. I think this is the, the one that has a lot on it. But heaven is a place where perfect peace is realized. It is a place of relation, perfect rest, according to Revelation 14, 13. It is where we will dwell with the Lord forever. It is a place of satisfaction, where every care will be forgotten, every hope realized, 
and every need supplied. Revelations 14, 13, that I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So again, we're going to take a, a time of rest. It's a time of relaxation. A time where we no longer have the pressures of this world, the temptations of the devil, all of these things hanging over us. But it's going to be a time where we are simply at rest from our laborers. We'll be able to spend time with one another, be with one another, and all of that. What an exciting time that will be. And of course, again, that is heaven or the place of rest or paradise. But although for the unrighteous, the lost, that's basically what they'll face until the great white throne judgment at the end of this earth, then they will be, they will have their, the rest of their eternity in the lake of fire. For those who are saved, our story is a lot different. We got a lot that will be going on. So the next event that we will be taking part of after this is the rapture. Yes, even when we die in this earth right now, if we pass away now and God comes back in five, ten years, yes, we will rise in the rapture. In fact, the Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first. First Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we... Oh. I feel the Holy Ghost on this last line. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. You see, in that day, those at Thessalonica, they were afraid. They said, all of our friends and, and our loved ones and our ministry, they're passing away. They're not here anymore, and God's going to come back. What's going to happen to them? And Paul was trying to reassure them, listen, even if they do pass away, it's okay. They still have their place in the rapture. When Christ comes back, they still will go up. In fact, not only are they going to go up in the rapture, they're going to go first. Hallelujah. They've got the first row tickets, praise God, to the rapture. So even if we do pass away, we are reassured by this. In fact, verse 18, I took it out. I should have left it. But verse 18 says, comfort one another with this. Because again, they had lots of loved ones that passed away. And they said, well, we're never going to see them again. He says, no, comfort them. Because when you pass away, that's not the end of your story. We will all be joined back together when Jesus comes back for the saints. So what happens at that point? We will be taken, as the Bible says, up into the clouds with the Lord. We shall ever be with him. But what specifically will happen? Well, we will be given glorified bodies, the Bible says. Glorified bodies. So 
I don't know what this looks like exactly. And this is actually one of the reasons why um, uh, there is an old older movie that uh, I, I had seen when I was younger called The Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, it made this a point about this, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I went and looked into it. But they, the Catholic Church had this very strong belief that you could not burn bodies because the belief was you had to bury the body so that when Christ came, comes back, he would take that body and glorify it. Then we would go up into heaven. Now, again, we recognize that, you know, if, if the Lord can bring a pile of bones and put them back together and put flesh on them and put air back into their lungs, that we don't have to be all intact, right? Hallelujah. We don't have to be preserved. We don't need to be stored away in a cooler somewhere. Praise God. For God certainly can take our bodies, even if it has returned to the dust of the earth, and can restore it and then glorify it, which is incredible, praise God. He will glorify it and cause it to come back together again. So what does that mean exactly, to glorify it? First uh, Corinthians fifteen forty two. so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, talking about their body, it is sown in corruption, but it will be raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So what does this mean exactly? Well, 1 John 3 and 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, so first he says, look, we don't know exactly what this means. We don't know exactly what we're going to look like. But we know this, we will be like Jesus. Now, when Jesus rose from the grave, it was obvious he had a glorified body. That's why the disciples could be sitting in a shut a room with the door shut, and then all of a sudden Jesus is there. He walks through the wall. It's because he had a glorified body. He still had the scars in his hands, so he still had the markers of his physical life and death on the earth, but his body had been glorified and transformed into a spiritual body. It's also that body that rose up into the air. I believe he could fly, praise God. I've always dreamt about flying, praise the Lord. I do believe that that's, that's very possible, something that we will have the ability to do uh, as Jesus again rose into the air. Jesus walked through walls. Jesus would appear and disappear. So again, this glorified body that we will have will have all these incredible aspects to it. It will be like Jesus. But look, look at this warning he gives. We're going to be like him the way that he is, for we shall see him as he is. We're finally 
And this is really the reason for the glorified bodies. In this flesh, we cannot see God for who He is. It is only with the glorified bodies that we will finally be able to look upon the Lord. We'll be able to finally see Him. All of earth, uh, that was the desire that I might see the Lord. Even Moses, oh, that I might see God. Show me your glory. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. Show me your glory. God says, I cannot show you my glory. I can only show you my hinder parts, he says. And I don't know exactly what that means. All I know, though, is that Moses could not look upon him fully. He could only see a portion of him. And that alone caused his face to shine. Hallelujah. But when that day comes and we're given glorified bodies, we shall see him as he is. We'll finally be able to look upon our Lord and Savior and look into the face, if you will, of our God and Creator. I can't wait until that day. Praise the Lord. I can't wait until that day. Saying all that, though, look at this warning that he's give, he gives. And every man that hath this hope, in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. If you've got this hope, and you want this body to be glorified, he says, you need to purify your body. You need to cut out all that sin. You need to cut out all that junk. This body is meant to be glorified. If it's going to be glorified in that day, then I need it to be purified today. Hallelujah. Can somebody say amen? Can you clap your hands unto the Lord one more time? Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, Lord God. Philippians 3, 21. There's many other scriptures. Uh, for time's sake, I'm just focusing on these. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Just to re reflect on the power that he had, the ability and authority he had in his glorified body. So we shall be given the glorified body. It is believed at this point we shall face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's been some who have asked me about the judgment seat of Christ, and uh, after doing much more research and just looking into this further, I am changing my thoughts on this a little bit. Uh, I, I suggested that the judgment seat of Christ is something we're going through right now, and although I do agree, and I'll talk about that, what we do right now is what will be judged I do think it's important to recognize there is a moment which we will sit before Christ and that judgment seat of Christ. But it's not going to be in a sense where He's going to judge us for our sins, but rather our actions. Every person, their actions will be judged, whether you're believer or unbeliever, lost or saved. It is believed we will sit we will sit before the judgment seat of Christ where the lost will sit before the great throne, uh, white throne judgment of God. Uh, and that is a place we don't want to go. 
So we go through this first judgment seat of Christ so that we do not have to go through the great white throne of judgment. So the saints of God will be judged or evaluated of all they have done or not done. And or not done. I need to add that and. And or not done. Romans chapter 14 and 10, it says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. It is us giving an account of our actions and our words to God. Malachi 3.16, it tells us, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Everything we do that's being written down, every thought that we have, every word that we speak, every action that we perform, it's being written down. It's being recorded in heaven. And when we come to that throne, that judgment seat of Christ, all of those things will be brought before us. Some people say it's going to be like a movie being played out. I don't know if it's going to be exactly like that or how it's going to happen, but whatever the way God's going to reflect and judge, evaluate everything we've done on this earth. That is why, as we'll continue to talk about this, this is going to be the main point tonight. That's why what we do on this earth is so important. It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to speak in tongues every now and then. We got to do something for God. We got to let God use us, praise the Lord. For the Bible says we shall be recompensed for our work on the earth. I believe that will happen during the judgment seat of Christ. He will evaluate what we've done while we are here. And he will recompense us according to that work. Luke 14, 14, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. That's when we will be recompensed. That's when we will be rewarded for what we've done. So let me be very clear about this. Our salvation is not of works of righteousness, which we have done. We can't give enough in the offering plate to make it to heaven. We can't, you know, give enough to the poor to make it to heaven. So our, our works won't have any bearing on our salvation. It is about our consecration to Christ that ultimately will bear on that. However, our reward is based on our works. Our reward when we get to heaven is based on what we do and how we do it. 1 Corinthians 3 and 8, it says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor.
we will be rewarded according to our own labor. So what does that look like exactly? What is the reward we shall receive? Well, there's actually several verses, many verses. In fact, I almost put put a whole bunch of verses about our crown. The Bible talks over and over again about us receiving a crown. Whether it be a crown of glory or some other type of crown, we absolutely will receive these emblems of God working in our life. This is the next point. We will receive crowns for what we do for God and how we do it. And that is an important part. If we're constantly, you know, again, if we're putting money in the offering plate and we're upset about it, we're, you know, you know, commenting about it and we're doing it begrudgingly, the Bible says, that there is no reward in that. When we pray, if we pray for other people to see us praying, there is no reward in that. Amen. Hallelujah. When we fast and we're fasting, we're telling everybody, oh man, I'm fasting, I'm so spiritual and all this stuff. Then there is no reward. Our reward is given to us by the attention we're seeking. That's the reward we get. But when we do it unto him in secret, then the Lord rewards us openly, right? Hallelujah. So it's not just about what we do, but how we do it. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Now this is important, especially for our leaders here. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensembles or examples to the flock. Now, now, what he's saying here is he's saying, don't try to take your own crown and call yourself a ruler. You're not a ruler. Don't claim yourself as a ruler. However, if you do this appropriately, verse 4, when the cheap shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So he's trying to say, listen, you could, that comment about filthy lucre, talking about don't do this for money. Don't do this for fame. Don't do this to try to get people to be under you. He says, do it so that you can receive a crown of glory from the Lord, one that fadeth not away and nobody can steal. Hallelujah. That's why we got to do it, right? I don't know about you, but I still want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I want to do it unto him and he will reward me according to his own judgment as he evaluates me and my life. Now, another thing that this means, and this is, this is mind-blowing. When I first heard this, this is many years ago, but when I first heard this and caught this, it just blew my mind. <coughs> Jesus gave the parables of the talents. You guys remember that parable, right? The, the master of the house gave the one five talents and the other three talents and the one the one talent. Well, of course, this is a parable that we can get many lessons on. But I truly believe this parable 
is actually about this right here. When he says that he brought all the servants together, that they may give an account for what they did with the talents, that's the judgment seat of Christ. They're coming before the, the, the master of the house, and they're bringing the talents which God had given him, and he's wanting to know, what did you do with what I gave you? If there's nothing else that you hear tonight, I, I want that to ring true. What have you done with what God has given you? Now, why do I believe that this is an example of the judgment seat of Christ? It says in Luke 19 and 16, Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. All of a sudden, it breaks out of the parable. And it presents now ten cities well, well, that's not exactly what the parable was about. It was about these lowly servants who were doing something for the master of the house. Now he's being assigned ten cities. Now, I believe that this is an example of that judgment seat of Christ. God will look upon us and what we did on this earth. And in the next earth to come, or in the next phase of this earth, in the millennial reign, He's going to look at what we've done, and he's going to designate our position and authority in the millennial reign. And if we have been faithful over the little, he's going to make us or give us authority over cities. Oh, praise God. I felt the Holy Ghost when I said that. Hallelujah. Faithful just over the little, he's going to give us the authority over cities. And that's what he says here. I believe that is an example of this judgment seat of Christ. He will look upon us. He will make that decision. Can I trust you in the millennial reign to carry out my will in these cities? And I'll explain what that means in just a minute. But can I trust you in this next phase to take on bigger work, more authority, to do more for the kingdom of God? The only way he's going to be able to determine if he can is by what we do today in this life, and how we treat the kingdom of God today. The next verse of Scripture, the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. He said, likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. However, we know the story of the final one who did not gain any, who was not a good servant. Matthew 25, 28 continues the dialogue about the wicked and unfaithful servant, says, Take therefore the talent from him. Give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. Now, now some may say, man, this isn't right. Why isn't this right? If you're faithful today, and you give your all today, and you're doing all of this without a reward today, but in faith. Why shouldn't God, at the end of this, all this is said and done, look upon you and say, you know what, you've got a lot because you did a lot, but I'm going to give you an abundance. Hallelujah. I'm going to give you more than what you deserve. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. 
I'm going to give him an abundance. But from him that hath not, it shall be taken away. Even that which he hath. Now this is what scares me. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, again, I want to be very careful here. I'm not God. But it seems to me what he's trying to say is that even if we will believe on Jesus Christ, even if we do go to heaven, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we've got nothing to show for our life other than we were baptized, we received the Holy Ghost, we went to church every now and then. We've got nothing else to show for it. He says, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He shall be cast into outer darkness. Now there's other scriptures to support this. He says, when you've clothed those who are naked, visited those in the prison, you did it as unto me. So well, how did we do it unto you? So when you do it unto the least of these, it's as if you've done it to me. He then proceeds to say exactly this, that he would cast those who did not do those things into outer darkness. Presumably these are the saved, and actually that's the continuation of this story. So yes, what we do in this life is not enough just to love the Lord and all that stuff. Yes, that'll give us in, get us into heaven again I'm not God, so I don't want to make it sound like I, I know 100%, but it seems to me, and you be your own judge, it seems to me that if I am unprofitable and I do nothing for God in this earth, then I do still face a greater judgment at that judgment seat of Christ than one that I desire to. Hallelujah. I might as well just give it all to Him. Amen. And let the Lord work in me. Now, I, I, I apologize. I ran out of time. I don't ha- didn't have the time to put all the scriptures up for this next portion. But here is the timeline we've come to. If we pass today, we will go to that place. Angels will carry us to the place of rest or heaven or paradise. When Jesus comes down from the clouds with a voice of triumph and And as the the trumpet sounds, we will be first to rapture up with glorified bodies. We will sit before the judgment seat of Christ. And it appears that we will then go through what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. We find the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelations 19 and 7. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her the wife was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they, which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now this is an incredible moment. I cannot explain exactly what's going to happen here. I don't know if this is a literal supper. I believe that this is probably, again, another emblem or symbolic to 
the types of cer- marriage ceremonies that God is Jesus is continuously referring to in the Gospels. Uh, it's possible at this time again, it's just reflecting the finality of now we're together with Christ. Now we are married with Christ. Hallelujah. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. We've been on this earth doing the will of God. We've been awaiting this day where we shall join together in final union at that time. Again, rather literal or symbolically or however it's meant to be, we will be finally brought into union with Christ during this marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. After that, that's not the end of our story. After that, we will return to the earth with Christ. The Bible says He will come down during that final battle in Armageddon. He will come down on a white horse. His name shall be called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He doth judge and make war. The Bible says His eyes will be as flame of fire. His head wore many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. The Bible says he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Then finally, it says, in the armies, that's you and me, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. After we receive our white clothes at the return or at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will return to the earth with Christ, riding white horses with our white linen robes, representing our righteousness before the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. I've never been much of a horse rider, but I can't wait for that ride. Praise God. I can't wait for that ride. After that, Again, we recognize all that Christ will be doing. Uh, the uh, angel will, will take the, uh, uh, praise God, the devil and the high priest and the Antichrist and will be throwing them in a pit, the Bible says, for a thousand years. That is why we call it the millennial, millennium reign. A thousand years that God will be in complete control over the earth. Now again, there's still people in the earth. So what the situation here is, is after that war, and God puts an end to it, there's still going to be, the earth is still going to be populated, much less so because of the great tribulation, but there will still be people on the earth who are neither judged, they've not gone to hell or heaven or anything like that. So they're going to be on the earth, and they're going to need people to reign over them and to build a system of government which will be designed by God himself. And who better to preserve that system but us, who have been given the power or the authority over ten cities. So during that millennium reign, it is believed that Christ would then appoint us to reign over portions of the earth, certain cities, 
areas where there are still people who populate it who are part of the earth. We, with our glorified bodies, would then, again, reign and rule. The Bible does say also we will be as priests and rulers. So some of us will fulfill uh, political roles, if you will, and some of us will fulfill religious roles. Certainly having the role of teaching and preaching the Word of God, continually offering to them this uh, system with the Lord has designed. So Revelations, I'm sorry, I forgot I didn't have it. But Revelation, if you want further uh, scripture on that, Revelation 20 and verse 6, it says, Blessed holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Excuse me. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now you got to remember, this has been a thousand years with no devil. Can you imagine what you could do with no devil? Hallelujah. You imagine how life would be like with no devil. Well, presumably, this is going to be a time of peace. The Bible describes it like the lamb will lie down with the lion. Because there's no devil, there's no chaos. Uh, People will, again, just live for God. However, the problem at that point, we have already gone through the the rapture and all that, but those who are on the earth, they're going to continue to procreate. And there's going to become a generation that's not going to have known the devil. They're not going to know what it was like to be tempted. At that point, I believe the reason this is happening is God looks at them at that point. He says, you know what? They need a choice. All these other people, they chose to serve me. I don't want a little army of robots that are forced to serve me. So here's what he does. He lets the devil out again. He allows Satan to exit out of the pit after the thousand years. Again, it says, uh, verse 7, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Doesn't say that Satan's going to get out of his prison. He is being loosed. He's being let out. Because God says, I need you to go give the people on the earth a choice. I want them to have to choose me again. I want more of them to worship me because they desire to worship me. Verse 8, and they shall go out to deceive the nations. Satan will go out and deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. This will be the final battle. The number of whom is the sand as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints. That's where we are. So while the devil's causing havoc in the earth, we are apparently going to leave and go to this camp, this place where we shall be at a beloved city, the Bible says. And as they're there, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So these are those 
who obviously chose not to serve the Lord, he will devour them. And that will ultimately be the final result of what is that, that time period, the millennium reign. It's after that that apparently God will be satisfied. Again, we don't know exactly what this means, but God will destroy this earth. He will destroy heaven and earth. He will cast uh, it into the lake of fire. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire where he will spend eternity. And then the Bible says that he will create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And that is our next place, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 and 7, it says that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. We won't even need tear ducts. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. At this time, and I'm, I'm wrapping it up, but the Bible says that there at the entrance of this new Jerusalem would be the tree of life, which we would be able to eat freely at. You remember the tree of life is what was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had the opportunity to eat of it, but they apparently chose to eat of the tree of good and evil. They were restricted from eating of that tree. But we will be able to eat of that tree freely. We'll enter through the gates made of pearls, the Bible said. We'll walk on streets made of gold. Praise God. We will be able to go to the throne of God. The Bible says there is no temple in this new Jerusalem because the entire city serves as the throne of God. There is no need for a sun because the glory of the Lord is what lights the entire place. Revelation 7.16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into the living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Oh, hallelujah. I don't know about you, but this is an an amazing place that I certainly would love to visit. Revelation 22 and 1 says that there is waters of life, pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Hallelujah. See, 
12 manners of fruits, yielding her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree, which were for the healing of the nations, the leaves of trees would heal nations. There'd be no more curse, the Bible says, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve them. And I'd like to end it here. There shall be no light there. They need candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God give them light. They shall reign forever and ever. How about we stand today? Hallelujah. The Bible says that we will worship night and day around the throne. Again, there's so much between here and then. It does appear that this is just one city. Likely we will have lives that we live in one time of year or maybe one time a month or every now and then we would have to go to the new Jerusalem and there spend time around the throne of God. So again, I don't think that this implies that there is not going to have any more life or anything like that. It's just simply going to be a life that has no pain. A life where we are being fed right from the throne of God. A life where we freely have access to the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. So this is the timeline for those who are the righteous. First, if we die today, we'd, be, we'd go to heaven. The angels carry us to heaven. When Jesus comes back, we will be raptured out of here with glorified bodies. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He will determine what we, de- what we deserve when it comes to the next phase of this earth. He will evaluate our actions. Then we'll go through the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be given white robes. We will return to the earth with Christ riding white horses. Then we will reign with Christ as priests and rulers in the new millennium for a thousand years. Then finally, the new Jerusalem, which we will forever be with the Lord and never parting again from his righteousness. Hallelujah. How about we take a moment right now just to thank the Lord. Can we take a moment right now and express to him, God, this is still my desire. Lord God, and I know there's a lot in this world that is constantly trying to to distract us. I know that the devil wants nothing more but to keep us from that place. The devil wants us to go to that lake of fire with him rather than to enjoy the new Jerusalem with you. But Lord, I have determined in my heart, it is settled in my mind, I shall be with the Lord. There's no other place I would rather be. No other place, Lord God, that I've made up in my mind, I will attend. But in 